going to be finishing out First Peter. I have to move a little faster than I typically do uh, going through it, but the goal is to finish that out on December 18th. Uh, we'll dive into a Christmas message entitled Missing the Point, and then obviously the 25th. But here we are, First Peter chapter 4, prepared uh, to glorify. Uh, when I was a teenager, which was a lifetime ago, I know, I, I remember commercials, which is another concept from a lifetime ago. Uh, my younger kids uh, are almost indignant when there's a commercial that shows up when they're watching a show. And I remind them there is a purpose to that. Uh, how else do you know when you need a Big Mac at 9 p.m. without commercials? So there it is. And it's close enough by. Uh, good luck getting it anytime soon. But either way, there's, it's there, right? But anyway, I remember uh, the, the military commercials when I was growing up. Uh, and I'm sorry up, up front, I remember the Marine ones. So I'm sorry, Navy guys, Army guys, all that. The Marine one is what stands in my mind. Uh, and I, what I remember about them is there's no doubt that there was a call to strength, resolve, and unwavering determination. Uh, they promised emphatically to make you a true and determined soldier. Uh, they were motivating and in the same way, uh, thought-provoking. I remember as a teenager thinking, could I handle it? Now I know I couldn't. But either way, I asked myself, could I handle it? Is it something I should step up to do? That, that was what the call, that was the purpose of this commercial. Calling out saying, is this something you should step up to do? Because these commercials didn't paint a picture of fluff and ease, but instead painted a picture of being prepared and ready to serve and defend. Uh, Peter, in light of the church's potential suffering, is making a similar call. Uh, here in four, to step up, uh, to be prepared, to glorify. Actually, it's, it's a similar call, but on a much more important level. Uh, now, he has just walked the churches then and us through Christ's suffering and sacrifice, yet he showed how that all terminated ultimately in Christ's victory and authority. So about three weeks ago, we finished chapter three. And as, as 1 Peter 3.22 says, speaking of Christ, it says, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. In other words, as we walked through his suffering and sacrifice, we landed on his victory that we would be on or serving the king who wins, who will win out and everything who is in charge of it all. And so keeping that in mind, Peter carries it forward, calling us to be prepared to glorify the King of Kings here on earth. It's a call to be armed and aware so that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how he closes out this calling. He even ends it with that amen, which oftentimes we forget what that can mean, it's an exclamation point at the end of his statement, which means, so let it be. He's saying at the end of all this call to be armed and aware that we will glorify God, we'll be prepared to do so. And he says, let that happen in an emphatic way. But for that to transpire, it requires us to be armed with the mindset of Christ and to live constantly aware of the eternal reality. So we begin our training, so to speak, by being armed. And that's looking at verses one through six. It begins like this, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. <clears throat> now, that word arm in Greek was a word used specifically for soldiers, and it was a call to put on your armor and take up your weapons. 
But it's interesting what word Peter chose there because the word he picked was to the heavily armed troops. So there was lightweight soldiers, not lightweight soldiers, but they would be lighter armed soldiers. And there were soldiers that would carry a pike and a large shield. Peter's word choice at this arming was military in its bearing, its military language, and actually was the most drastic type of military language used. Arm yourself as the most heavily armed soldier would arm themselves. So we understand and grasp the importance of what he's about to say. And he begins saying, you need to have an engaged purpose. We take Christ's resolve at the cross, his insight and perspective on life and ministry, and put it on, so to speak, so that we can live out his purpose, a purpose that is willing to die if needed. Christ calls us, and Peter's calling and reminding us, to his mindset, which he came to earth to die on the cross. So his purpose is something we're supposed to be willing to die for, his purpose no matter what. The text continues, For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. You see, to be engaged in his purpose requires us to be linked to his will. He begins by stating, as we suffer for righteousness, he says, we have ceased from sin. And we need to understand that this is connected to persecution and the change that being persecuted implies. Uh, In one context, suffering persecution could result in dying for their faith. (coughs) We even see that today. There's areas of the world where believers are persecuted to the point of dying, leading to an ultimate victory over sin, ceased forever from sin and its shackles. So a believer who dies is in eternity and there is not oppressed by sin or its temptations or its pull at all. In another context, it shows the believer suffering persecution from the world because of their holy living. The world hates light. It hates righteousness and points to the fact that these believers having ceased from evil means it shows a life that is dedicated to his will. And so it's not under the the chains of sin. It doesn't mean that they became sinless, but instead the hold of sin is broken on their life. They're not controlled by sin anymore. So the suffering points to a direction in their life because the world attacks believers and the believers they attack are the believers that live for Christ. The world could care less about believers that live for the world. You're doing the world no favors, except you don't bother or shine at all when you live as them. So as a believer who is suffering, you will face persecution. It indicates a direction of your life. It doesn't mean we go out and seek persecution. It's just that when we are persecuted for the faith, it's a persecution that indicates to us that we're living for Christ. This is evident by no longer living for the desires of the world. Instead, the believer is concentrated on God's will and not surrounding diversions. Peter is going to be very emphatic about that. He's going to make it crystal clear to help us understand that we must be loosed from the old life. That's what verse 3 is emphatically stating. You've had enough time living worldly. 
be freed from that, he says. No longer should we live is the idea of spending in Greek. So don't live anymore. It says don't spend anymore there. Being loose from the old life means to not spend your life on the pursuits of this world. Peter is not stuttering when he says this. He's not hemming and hawing. He's not soft selling it. He's walking into this and he says, look, if you're going to be prepared to glorify God, you're going to have to be armed with his mindset. You're going to have to take on the idea that it's his purpose to the death, no matter what. And then you're going to, to do that, to have that singular focus, you must be engaged on his purpose. To be engaged on his purpose means you're connected to his will, but you must be disconnected from your old will. We have had enough time, it says, to spend pursuing the world, to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. And when he uses the word Gentiles, he means the lost or the rebellious. He then gets specific, and that's that list of things there. Do not engage in lasciviousness. That's a big word right there that I can stumble over a couple times, Um, which means this, living with no moral restraints, keying in on immorality and actually violence. We have a lascivious culture, right? Keyed in, I'm not going to say the word anymore, Uh, keyed in on violence, actually, and immorality. And he says, stop it. I just want you to realize what was happening back then is happening today. We have a wicked world. They had a wicked world. He says, no longer engage in lust, which are sinful passions and desires that exert a strong influence on one's behavior. So the first one is this focusing in, like directing your attention to immorality and violence. So it's this explosive passion. When it talks about lust, it's talking about how your desires, a range of them, will lead you or or will control you. They influence you beyond what it ever should influence you. Excess of wine is a, is a simple one, but it's drunkenness. But really what they're, he's tying into is uncontrolled behavior bent on following physical desires. So it's not just the effects of too much alcohol. He's talking about what happens when we become uncontrolled. And when we become uncontrolled, we then chase what pops immediately into our mind. There is no restraint Against that. Then the word revelings, which is, is a long one to define, these started out as banquets and feasts that digressed into something much worse, becoming wild, furious, and immoral. Uh, one Greek writer from that time, it's, it's not from biblical writings, but from that era, uh, described this revelings were used to describe parties that expanded into the public forum, wildly moving up and down the streets, singing and making a disaster of everything, a major public disturbance, revelings. They go on to banquetings, which reveling seems to be this party that, that digressed into doing whatever you want, It's almost like the the illustration of what we should avoid. And then banquetings are more religious celebrations that got completely out of hand as well. All closing out with abominable idolatries, which is the word for lawless idolatry. And we have to think there, all idolatry is lawless in God's eyes. So Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if he was just referring to idolatry in the sense of worshiping idols, he wouldn't need to put the word lawless. He puts the word lawless 
to show you how awful this was, it meant that these idolatrous practices were outside the realm of Roman law, so immoral and debauched that the government had labeled it wrong. And when I was writing that, I almost wrote the word society, but obviously society had not labeled it wrong. It was the government. Uh, And in the Roman world, you got away with a lot. So these communities could engage in this, but based on what Peter's writing, it was against Roman law. Uh, The Romans were pretty wicked people. So if they're saying it's illegal, this these cities were engaging in some of the most vile things possible. And Peter is saying to the church, don't get involved in this. You've had enough time to do this. Have an engaged purpose. So arm yourself, he says, with the thinking of Christ and make sure you have an engaged purpose, one that excludes the world's pursuits and priorities. And this is where the application is going to hit home. Because I know I list all those sins and you're like, yeah, I'm not doing that, not doing that, I'm not doing that, not doing that. But here's the idea. It's about where your focus is and what your priorities are. And what Peter is trying to make clear is that you don't blend the two. That you cannot, in this Christian life, pursue Christ and his purpose and pursue the world. You can't mix them. Too often we try to. We try to find a way to blend the pursuit of this world and the pursuit of Christ. If you're a coach on a sports team, you can't build that team on two competing philosophies. You can't run two opposing offenses. Or to make it really clear, you can't play two quarterbacks at the same time. They both don't get the ball on the same play. And we understand that, right? We know that's how that works. It makes sense. But then when you take that logic to the Christian life is when we as believers sit back and start arguing it, we attempt to blend the two. And that's not how the battle is won. Or to put it in context, what Peter's writing, that's not how you glorify your Savior. You cannot have a mixed purpose in life. It doesn't mean we don't do our work well. We don't excel in our work, that we don't focus on work. We all have uh, areas of expertise and, and career, and we, we invest in that. We work hard at that. That's not talking about a mixed purpose. It's not talking about success in your career. But what is the final goal and the priority? It doesn't mean you don't have fun hobbies. What, though, is the purpose of your life? Be honest about that. Answer that question. If your purpose is to have, get, attain here, and that is what the ending point is, what you've recognized in yourself, and that's what Peter's trying to drive the church to, is understand you cannot blend the two. You cannot have two purposes. You have to have an engaged purpose. It has to be engaged and exclusive if we're to glorify as we should our Savior. Yet, We enter into this battle as believers, and Peter reminds us again, and if you've noticed through all of 1 Peter, he is constantly reminding the church or assuring the church. Well, in the midst of calling them out, so to speak, in the midst of prodding them to be armed with Christ's mindset, to have an engaged purpose, he reminds them that we don't live in uncertainty, but instead have an engaged security, and that's verses 4 through 6. Wherein, it says, speaking of the world, they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who, speaking of the world again, shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. 
for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. And Peter says, yes, we're going to face pushback. We can be attacked. One writer noted this, ancient sources, both Christian and non-Christian, provide ample evidence that it was the Christians' reluctance to participate in many conventionally accepted amusements and ungodly civic ceremonies and their refusal to engage in idolatrous, immoral functions that caused unbelievers to hate and revile them. That led to unjust persecution and suffering for righteousness' sake. I listed it this way, the world does not understand our change. Think it strange. When the world looks at your life as a believer and the change that's wrought there, when the world examines that, they see it and their reaction is that strange. They cannot understand, they cannot grasp why a Christian lives and acts the way they do. They also will not accept the change, speaking evil of you. The world, and this is important to realize, will pursue its agenda. We're not to be surprised by the world's hate or the world's pressure or the world's push. I'm not saying we, we lay down and let it happen. Uh, in the United States, and, and we live in one of the freest countries in the world, even with the, the, the pressure we feel, it's nothing compared necessarily to what other people in the world may be feeling, but the world is going to pursue its agenda. I'm grateful for people who dive in and fight back against that to help us maintain our rights as believers, but I'm not surprised that the world does what it does. That is the nature of the world. It will not accept, nor can it understand anything else. It cannot grasp it, yet we should not be swayed by it. We are not to run with them. Instead, we must remind ourselves that we are affirmed. The world attacks us. God affirms us. Verse 5, understand this. We need to be aware that the world's attack upon God's children is not swept under the rug. Peter reminds us it's not vindictive. He just says, they're going to attack you, but the one who judges the quick, the alive and the dead, the one who judges everyone is going to hold them accountable. Their vicious attacks are debts they accrue and for which they will be judged. We are not responding. It's not for us to seek vengeance, but we serve a God who says, I will not brush that under the rug. God takes serious the attacks on his own. You have a friend that attacks you for being a believer. You can be worried for them because they're accruing a debt to God. And that is the debt they can't afford to pay except in death, both physically and eternally. Verse 6 is an interesting verse that people have manipulated for their purpose and finances, but we'll go into it. Second, the world's attacks may have resulted in the death of believers, and certainly some in the church have passed away even naturally. When he says the gospel preached to the dead, he's not referring to you preaching in the graveyard. He's actually referring to believers that have died in the faith. They have passed away. So either they have been killed for their faith or have possibly died naturally, but they are no longer alive. So Peter emphasizes that though they have died physically, that's judged in the flesh. 
Because ultimately, what do we face here on earth? Our physical bodies will die. We know, uh, what is a joke? Everyone knows for certain taxes and death, right? That's the two things you can know. Well, death is a reality of sin. And so they are judged in the flesh in that way. They have died physically, but they now, he says, live in the spirit, unfettered by sin and under no duress and hate from a sinful world. The ultimate end to the world's persecution is physical death. I'm not saying that they can't make life miserable, but ultimately it it, it terminates with death. But that threat is null and void in light of God's eternal life found in him alone. Now, the early church wondered at times about those that died in the faith, those that died before Christ's return. And they said, what's going to happen to them? Because they were looking at the immediacy of Christ's return and, and living in that expectation, an expectation we're supposed to live under, but we've gotten numb to it to some degree. But they, they live with that expectation, and so they wondered what would happen to those that died. And so Peter takes time to reassure the church that they received their reward. The saints that have gone before miss nothing. They may have died physically, judged in the flesh as men, as humans, as sinful in that regard, but in eternity, they are alive in the spirit. They are redeemed. They are affirmed in Christ. We are completely secure in Christ and nothing this world can do or throw at us changes that. The world is held under God's judgment for what they do. No matter, and this is important for us, no matter if it seems they're getting away with it. So we think the world is doing whatever they want. It doesn't seem like God cares and God reminds us in his word, they face judgment specifically for what they do. They're accruing a constantly growing debt for which they will answer. We as believers, though, must remain engaged on his purpose, singularly focused on accomplishing his will and doing so knowing we have a sure and certain eternal future. We are armed, Peter says, with the mindset of Christ, the complete dedication of Christ, so we can live with an engaged purpose and an engaged security, positioned to bring him glory, yet being prepared to bring God glory requires us also uh, to be aware. That's what 7 and 11 focus on. And there's a reason to be aware. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. I remember this past summer, uh, Heather and I went and visited Grand Canyon with our kids and uh, it's, it's awe-inspiring. If you've never seen the Grand Canyon, I say make a point to go out there. If you have children, I think any age, it doesn't matter, uh, tie a rope around your waist and on them, unless they're heavier than you. I'm just kidding. Um, but it creates in a parent instant nervousness. I mean, you walk to this edge. I have a little problem with heights to begin with. Uh, and so it makes me almost feel dizzy when I'm that close to it. Um, there's rails in certain places, but definitely not surrounding the whole Grand Canyon um, at all. There's some points, and it's just two metal rails. Kids can slip under, climb over, jump off. They can do whatever they want there. Uh, so I call the majority of the rim is unfenced, and the rails kind of pointless. And then you take kids. And I am constantly saying, don't get too close. Don't play around. Don't jump from rock to rock. Remember, there is an abyss right over there, which is going to kill you if you fall into it. I say all the drastic things. They seem oblivious to this. It's like 
it's a big trampoline over on the abyss. They could fall there and bounce right back. Uh, and so I'm constantly reminding them as they drop, jump from rock to rock uh, of the huge drop-off just feet away. We wanted them constantly aware of the danger, yet they seemed purposefully to forget it. That's how I felt as a dad. They're doing this on purpose. They're torturing me. They want to do this. After all the good I've done them, this is how they repay me. I don't necessarily think those thoughts, but I was paranoid. Um, Believers, though, we must live aware of our and everyone's eminent eternity. We are lulled to sleep in our life. We become very distracted. Now, removing from the arm that battle format, now Peter shifts this idea of being awake to what's going on. And he ties it in. He says, look, if you're going to glorify God, you have to be ready for battle. That's one. But you have to be aware of what's going on. And he, and he gives us that one thing. The end of all things is at hand. We tend to neglect eternity. We tend to live in a world where we almost feel like we won't die, uh, that we won't face heaven or that's something in the future and that'll be all the cloud floating, heart playing time there. We don't connect to the reality of eternity. But to glorify God requires us to be aware of eternity. And when you're aware of that, it requires then, and he continues on, an engaged discernment. The end of verse seven says this, be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now, sober is a call to be self-controlled or of sober judgment. It's a need, honestly, to be in one's right mind, under control and not carried away by a wrong perspective of yourself or carried away by emotion and desire. So it might sound like this person is, is gathered. When you say be in one's right mind, now, if you're in your right mind as a Christian, you have, again, the mind of Christ. And so it's a reminder to have that mindset but also that you're not allowing your emotions and desires to push and sway you. It's also not allowing yourself to see who you are through the eyes of the world, but instead see your life through the eyes of Christ. Because we get pretty enamored with ourselves. We think we're pretty good. We're better than. We're doing okay. That's all a wrong perspective. And so he's driving us to say, don't have the wrong perspective and don't be driven by emotion. Then the word watch is a call for us to be spiritually observant or vigilant. It is the sentiment that Jesus gave the apostles when he warned them to be on the alert, Matthew 24, 42, and to keep watching, which is the verse before that in Matthew. Be aware, be awake, be vigilant. And this watching and control is centered unto prayer. Or if you're reading that in a different way, and the way the Greek is trying to say it, it affects how you pray. It, it alters your prayer life. It's directly linked to our spiritual resources. Being blind spiritually and emotionally motivated or twisted undermines your prayers. What happens? They become worldly, disconnected from God's word, self-centered. That'll be indicative of a spiritual life that is eroding away because your prayer life should be directly linked to what you read in God's word. This is what he says to you. Prayer is, a, is our expression back to him. What he's going to tell you comes from the Bible. When you become not sober and not watchful, then you'll find a slip away from God's word. You'll find yourself connected to self and you'll find yourself 
worldly. You have to have your discernment engaged, our spirit under control and spiritually vigilant. We must be sober and watch, but that's not done from the sidelines. Instead, we have to have engaged lives. That's where he carries on in verse 8 and 9. And above all things, have fervent charity, which is love, among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. An engaged life means an engaged in the life of the church. Engaged with other believers, connected with the rest of God's family. And that is expressed in love. If you're wondering how we should love the brothers in Christ, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, read through those, keep reading till you grasp what John is trying to say about love. Uh, This love is to be fervent, though. It's a fervent charity. And that's a word that means something is stretched and strained. When we see the word fervent, we often think passionate. But what he's using is love that is pulled to its extreme, It involves maximum effort. MacArthur notes of fervent love, such love is sacrificial, not sentimental, and requires a stretching of believers, every spiritual muscle to love in spite of insult, injury, and misunderstanding from others. He's not calling you to a love that you always feel like giving or a love that makes you feel good inside. And look, we sometimes love people that aren't easy to love, but it makes us feel good. That's a sentimental love. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not the love he's talking about here. He says, I want you to love until you're strained. He's basically saying you're going to love like Christ loves, which answers in the next phrase because he says it covers a multitude of sins. This love covers sins, but does not excuse them. It means Christian love chooses to love the unlovely. And there is somebody in history who did the same. Jesus demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. We then love sinners as well, especially the sinners that are in the church, because of and for the gospel. You want your standard of love? Christ died on the cross because he loved you. Why did he die on the cross for you? Because you're amazing and you're so wonderful? No, because you're despicable and a sinner. So how are you supposed to love the church specifically and sinners outside of that? We're well, supposed to love the unlovely. To, to what point is he saying? Till it's strained, until it's difficult, till it's sacrificial, till the maximum effort is giving. When should you quit? Well, when did Jesus quit? Never is what he's trying to say. He's driving them to have engaged lives in their church. Now, he goes on to illustrate it. This love is expressed and illustrated very practically by hospitality, which literally means to love strangers. So he calls the church to extend their love in a practical and tangible way, especially in their culture. For people that were traveling, you didn't want to stay at a hotel. It was dangerous and despicable, oftentimes used for corrupt practices, immoral things. And so you wanted to extend this hospitality. And he says, I want you to extend it, this love toward other believers that may not even be known by you. I want you to extend this love to people because you have the ability and I want you to do it in a certain way. He says, I'm going to give you specific instructions, necessary instructions. Do it without grumbling or complaining. How do you express love in that culture and that time? It was hospitality. But don't we love to complain about how we help and care for those in the church? We complain until someone pats us on the back. 
And then we can feel good about our sacrificial living. And Peter says emphatically, cut that out. Live an engaged church life minus the grumbling. In other words, minus the glory seeking. Minus I've done enough isms. It's your turn isms. Minus all of that, have an engaged life. Love the church. How much? To the point of straining. What's our example? Christ. When did he love the church? While we were yet sinners. He's telling you, and when I hear people say this, when I say I cringe and I instantly push back, I don't want to be in church because there's a bunch of hypocrites. That's not what the Bible says you're supposed to do. It says love the hypocrites. It doesn't say condone the hypocrites. It says love them. There's no excuse. Absolutely none. You're to be engaged in the life of the church because it's his church and for the sake of the gospel. It's to be filled, though, and this is interesting, this engaged life is supposed to be filled with an engaged ministry. And he closes out 10 and verse 11. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. To be prepared to bring God glory, we must actively engage the giftedness that God has given to every believer. When you were saved, God gifted you with a gift that's not from your natural abilities. And I'm not saying that some things that come naturally to you may not be expressed through the gifts that God gives you, but the gift is from God. It's not something you're born with that you can trace your lineage to. This is God's giftedness. And here's a fact. He has gifted every single believer. But God intends that the gifts he give are to be used in his and for his church. So if you are a believer sitting here today, you are gifted by God uniquely. There might be a different blend of those gifts in you than in somebody else. You have been gifted at salvation to serve God. But he intends for you to serve him, to serve his church. Peter breaks it down into two main categories, speak and serve. Those gifted to speak must do so understanding they speak God's words, not their own. There's some preachers sometimes get up and they think they actually speak the oracles of God for him, but instead you speak what God has said already. I'm not adding anything to what God has said, and you shouldn't listen to me if I was, because there's nothing to add. If you have a speaking gift expressed, and I say a blend because some people are like, well, I'm a speaking gift. I don't want to serve. No, there's usually a blend that comes out there. But when we speak, we speak God's words. We, we take what we want to say and we carve off anything that's not what God has said. So I always use the past. We understand we speak God's word. Examples of that include preaching, teaching, counseling, the gift of discernment. And those who serve do so knowing the strength and ability come from God, such as administration, prayer, mercy, and help. The point of all that he's saying, though, is this. Use your gifts for the benefit and growth of the church. And then express those gifts knowing they come from the Lord. So in other words, we're not elevating self. 
We're not being pretentious in what we do, but instead we recognize a giftedness from God given to every believer that must, by God's mandate, find its expression in the church for the growth of the church. Why? Because it's his church and we are his children and he expects what he has given to us to be used to help his children. Use your gifts for the benefit and growth of the church, knowing that God gave them. So serve as the Lord enables you and speak what he has said. Being aware of eternity prompts the church to have an engaged discernment in life, engaged lives in the church, and engaged ministry for the church. If we are to be prepared to glorify our Lord and Savior, Uh, To be singularly focused on him and his kingdom, we must be armed with his mindset. And I want to remind us, heavily armed with it. Peter was on purpose about his word, not just lightly connecting to his mindset. The idea of being heavily armed is being adamantly prepared. You are going to face the brunt of the battle. And so when he says, arm yourself with his mindset, be serious about having the mind of Christ. We must be aware also of everyone's eminent eternity, and that drives us then to be engaged in his church with discernment and expression of his gifts. Let me remind you what he said at the end, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to study your word, to be prodded for. We recognize that we are supposed to be prepared to glorify you, but to glorify you is not going to be something that's going to happen by an accident, uh, but instead is going to be driven by a focused life, one that is armed with the mindset of Christ and one that is aware of everyone's eminent eternity. We know the end is coming and we need to have our sphere of influence in mind as we walk through life, as we look at different friends and family, uh, some of the people we know and are close to are believers and we rejoice in that and we worship together and we grow together. But there's people in our lives who we know face a Christless eternity. And Peter makes it very clear that judgment is coming. But he reminds us uh, to be prepared as we glorify you. We shine a light on your truth. We shine a light on the only salvation, which is through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask as a church that we are focused, that we're zeroed in on what we're called to do, our purpose here on earth. As believers, we're left here on earth to be your ambassadors. Our purpose is to point to our king constantly because the world around us, no matter what their immediate need is, needs Christ. They need you and help us as a church to be the light in our community, to be heavily armed with your mindset, uh, to be engaging in the life of the church, engaging in our community, engaging in ministry so that we may glorify you first and foremost. And in glorifying you, share the light of your one true gospel in your precious and holy name. 